For my third and final session, I've been assigned the doctrine of God's immutability, the unchanging God of all creation and redemption, uh, a doctrine that should be precious to you and constantly in your heart and on your mind, for it's in this reality of the unchanging God that our hope is grounded and rooted. Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. Even if Malachi 3.6 had not said that, I could say if God is simple and if God is impassable, necessarily he does not change. It's entailed in the full and pure actuality of his divine being. That sounds abstract. But it's also the very thing that grounds and roots your confidence in his word and in his promises. Classical Christian theism, which I just like to refer to as broad meat and potatoes orthodoxy, the stuff we should all believe just because we're Christians, is deeply devoted to the absoluteness of God with respect to his existence, his essence, and his activity. Nothing about God is derived or caused to be. If there's a theme that I can circle back to again and again, it's that we, we exercise our minds to push out any thoughts that God is a made-to-be thing. We need to maintain that absolute creator-creature distinction. As soon as that distinction becomes porous, as soon as we begin to relativize the divine being, our hope in his promises is disabled. Nothing about God's being then is derived or caused to be. There's nothing behind God or outside of him that could increase, alter, or augment his infinite fullness of being and felicity. Not Romans 9, 5. He is God blessed forever. Not God on the way to getting blessed. God blessed forever. For this reason, then, he cannot subject himself to changes. Now this I'm going to make a major proposition, and I'm going to solicit your careful attention uh, because this is the thing I want to argue and defend. He cannot subject himself to changes because every change involves a cause that brings to the subject an actuality of being that the subject lacks in and of itself. You did get your coffee before we started this morning, right? I did. I, that, that might be bad news for you. I don't know. This is what we're saying. Every change has to have something that makes it so. If I, I, I changed positions, for instance. I was sitting down uh, with my daughter. Now I'm standing in front of you. Um, there was a change. I was potentially standing in front of you. Now I actually am standing in front of you. Something had to actualize that in me. Something had to make it so. That's a cause. All changes require that we be subject to whatever causes the change. But if God is uncaused, do you see how this goes? If God is an uncaused, an unmade being, then there can't be that which makes God be or causes God to fill in the blank. His infinite fullness of being. Moreover, and there's another side to this, not only does it require a cause, it also requires, you ready for this, a paucity of being in the thing changed. You knew that. You knew that. 
That just simply is to say, if you're going to change into some state of being, you had first to lack it. You know what I'm after? In other words, I can't change locomotively at this moment to standing behind the podium. You know why I can't change into this state? Because I already am standing behind this podium. In other words, I actually, in other words, there's no actuality to be acquired at this point. I've already got it. Change requires a lack of actuality of being. You have to be finite in order to change. You have to be limited in being in order to be subject to change. Every change brings to you a state of actuality and being that you hitherto lacked. You change your mind. There's actually new thoughts in your mind. That's, that's a new reality. You stand up. That's a new position. Uh, it's not an essential thing. It doesn't make you human or less human, but it does make you a standing human. In other words, it gives you, it gives you isness. Yeah, you got some is. You have the isness of being seated right now, and you can say, you don't say it that way. That's be careful how you use that word isness. Um, you are. You can say, I am seated. You're declaring a state of being. You can shed that state of being just simply by standing up uh, and walking about. In other words, changes require, on the one hand, a loss of a state of being, perhaps definitely an acquisition of a state of being. But God is not going about acquiring states of being. He just is, not is not. If God is wholly uncaused and self-sufficient in the plentitude of his being, then he cannot be moved to some further actuality. This would suggest some imperfection, I don't mean moral imperfection, but a, an incompleteness of being and an absence of actuality and insofar as being is good, goodness. Herman Bovink distills the claims of immutability very succinctly. Every change is foreign to God. In him there is no change in time, for he is eternal, nor in location, for he is omnipresent, nor in essence, for he is pure being. Let me, let me put this in a kind of crass way, but I think one that helps us get it. His name is not I am and I'm not. It's, it's just I am. That's what we mean. Pure, infinite plentitude of being, if, you, if you'll indulge me a bit, sheer act of existence, indulge me a little further. Ipsum esse subsistence. Yeah. Being itself subsisting. You have being. God is being. Okay? Her, now to John Owen. One of my favorites. God alone hath all being in him, says Owen. Hence, he gives himself the name, I am. He was eternally all. When all things else that were made or now are or, will, or shall be were nothing, in this state of infinite eternal being and goodness, antecedent unto any act of wisdom or power without himself, to give existence unto other things, God was and is eternally in himself all that he will be, all that he can be unto eternity." Creation is the effect of God, but God the creator is unchanged and isn't becoming. Back to Owen. For where there is infinite being and infinite goodness, there is infinite blessedness and happiness, whereunto nothing can be added. If God is being itself, then what, he, what can he become that he isn't? 
already. Back to Owen. God is always the same. All things that are make no addition unto God, no change in his state. His blessedness, happiness, self-satisfaction, as well as all of his other infinite perfections were absolutely the same before the creation of anything. Now a little bit for the theological framework of this. Before I get into a few texts that speak to immutability and the significance of it, I want to consider just one other attending doctrine to help with this. I want to consider the doctrine of divine aseity. We've introduced this. It's been referenced a few times. Um, This is a term that has uh, sadly fallen out of our Christian grammar, uh, but deserves to be rehabilitated. Aseity is is simply the statement that God is of himself, or that God is the reason for himself. I mentioned uh, in our talk on simplicity, aseity is from the Latin ase, which just means of himself or from himself, not in the sense of self-caused or self-made. Again, you have to be in order to do. Therefore, God couldn't be the absolute first cause of himself. He's just uncaused. He's being itself. But he is of himself in the sense that God is the reason for God. All that is in God just is God. Nothing funds God. God just is the perfect plentitude of being by which he is all that we say he is. If you want another way of thinking of aseity, you could just think of this as the doctrine of God's of himselfness. God's of himselfness. Herman Boving says, when, we, when God ascribes this aseity to himself in scripture, he makes himself known as absolute being, as the one who is in an absolute sense. By this perfection, he is at once essentially and eternally distinct from all creatures. The Puritan Stephen, by the way, that is just so important. What is it that makes God not a, what is it that accounts for the fact that God is not a creature? Um, God is of himself. All things not God are of and from God. Got this? That's it. Most fundamentally, God is the sufficient reason for God. God is the sufficient reason for everything not God. Therein lies the creator-creature distinction. You are not of yourself. You are of or from another. God is of himself. Stephen Charnock, the great English Puritan, God is of himself from no other. He says, God hath no original. I love that way of saying it. God hath no original. God is not a perfect copy of something else. God isn't based off of some blueprint of being more fundamental than himself. God hath no original. He hath no source. God isn't from another. He hath no defect, he says, because he was not made from nothing. He hath no increase because he had no beginning. He was before all things and therefore depends upon no other things. Maybe put it this way, that which has no beginning cannot begin to be. But every change, every mutation is, small or large, a beginning to be. I began to be in a new place when I walked up here on the platform. If God is without beginning, then he cannot begin to be. Otherwise, at just that moment, we would locate a beginning of being of some sort or another for God. One clear implication then of this doctrine is that God neither derives anything from his creation, nor is he the cause of himself. Bobbing says, it's evident from the word aseity, God is exclusively from himself, not in the sense of being self-caused, but being from eternity to eternity who he is, being, not becoming. I want to look at one biblical text to support 
this doctrine of divine aseity, and that's in Exodus chapter three, where God reveals this, this beautiful and unique name, the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh. And you remember in the context, uh, at the end of chapter two in Exodus, God hears the cries, we're told, of his people in Egypt, and we're told that he heard their groaning, and uh, interestingly, it doesn't say that his heart was moved or anything like that, though sometimes the Bible does appropriate passion language in, a, in an anthropomorphic way to describe God. But it says here, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he saw the sons of Israel and took notice of them. It's not like God was unaware and then, oh, what's this moaning? What's this crying? Oh, right, Israel, oh, the patriarchs. Um, but the idea is that God is now attending to their concerns. He comes down to Moses. Moses has been shepherding the sheep of his father Jethro for 40 years in the wilderness, and he appears one day on the side of Mount Horeb, which is also Sinai, uh, and he appears uh, in a strange way in a bush that's burning, uh, but there's more to it. It's not burning up. This is a theophany. God appears in a flame and speaks words that Moses can understand. And as Moses draws near, God tells him to remove his sandals for the place on which he's standing is holy ground. God has condescended to meet in a phenomenal, temporal, local way with Moses through fire and through sound waves. God is speaking to Moses. And he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Moses hid his face and was afraid to look at God. And then God proceeds to tell him about the affliction of his brethren down in Egypt. Fast forward a little bit to verse 10. God says, so he's informed Moses of his intent to save them. But then God says in verse 10, now come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses doesn't say, oh, thank you. I was, I was born to the purple I was meant for better things. I know how to conduct myself at court. I'm the perfect candidate, and I've just been waiting to get away from these sheep. Doesn't say, I mean, and doesn't say, God, I'm your man. You chose well. That's not what he says. Moses, in fact, professes almost anti-oseity. Uh, I think one theologian calls it self-insufficiency. We talk about God's self-sufficiency. This is self-insufficiency. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? It's a question. <laughs> like it was about that anyway. Do you know what I mean? Who, who am I? <laughs> it's really interesting. God passes over in silence the question. Doesn't, can I say something about Moses? I don't, uh, the problem is not that Moses lacks self-esteem. Moses is probably making a right assessment of himself. He's just in this moment, fail, in this very moment, failing to perceive where the strength comes from. God says, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that it's I who have sent you when you've brought the people out of Egypt. You shall worship God at this mountain. That's the first thing. He says, it's not about you, it's about me. I'm the one who is your strength and your sufficiency. You, you feel cast about and uncertain. It's, it's me, I'll be the one doing this. Verse 13. Then Moses has a second question. Moses said, behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Now there are a couple of ways you can take this. Um, one read of it, um, I think not the correct one, is almost something like um, 
the Israelites, the Hebrews know um, the secret password. You know, what's his name? Because only the Hebrews know the name of the one true God. And if he's legitimate, um, he's going to know the secret name. I don't think that's what's going on. In a Semitic culture, a name is a disclosure of someone's virtues and power and character. A name tells you about the one who bears it. And what's, what, I think what they're really asking when they say, what is his name, it would be our way of saying, um, what is he like? And the reason you ask what is he like is because the proposition here is fantastically absurd. You're going to go down to Pharaoh, the superpower on earth at that time who is, in, who, is, who is underway in a vigorous building project, building store cities, who needs this labor and who is not discontent with his situation at all. And you're going to go and say to him, um, let your labor force just walk away. Seems laughable. And I think the people of Israel are going to wonder, and this is the question I think, what is it about God that we should have confidence in this remarkable thing that you're saying to us? What you're saying is, what, what is he like? Because you want me to have confidence in what you're saying he's told you to tell us? Then tell us about him. What is it about God that grounds my confidence in these remarkable promises? God said to Moses, verse 14, I am who I am, or I am that I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, now he abbreviates it, I am, or Yahweh has sent me to you, verse 15. God furthermore said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the I am, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and my memorial name to all generations. This is a strange name. See, when I say I am, I always put a little something else after that. I am human. I am standing. I am speaking. I am married. I am, you get what I'm after? In other words, all my little I ams get these little um, qualifications right afterward. I don't just say I am. I mean, you could say to me, um, are you standing? And I could say I am, but you've already offered the qualification, standing. You know what I'm after? In other words, all my I am's are contracted and specified by this or that or another finite state of being. God's I am, in this case, his name is not a specified or contracted name, a delimited I amness, just I am. Just is, not is this, that, or the other, just is. That's my name, is. The way the, uh, the way the Septuagint translates it, ego, a me, I am, <clears throat> ha, on, um, the being one. You, you could, I think Durham in his commentary on Exodus uh, renders it, um, I am the ising one. Which is, <laughs> I told you it'd be strange if God were not strange. This is strange. One whose name is is. That this is this is this is what's most fundamental. This is true existentialism. Forget Jean Paul Sartre. This is true existentialism. This is God who is the is by which He is. Now back to the now back to the context. See that sounds abstractive to you. In a certain way, there's no way for our minds not to think about that abstractively. But this is the beauty of it. We have to think abstractively, but His I amness isn't abstract. It's concrete. 
I don't have a way to speak about just is, not abstractly, but this is an is that subsists. I told you ipsum esse subsistence. This is the is that is in fact subsisting, not an abstraction, a concrete subsisting I am. <laughs> By the way, God doesn't share this name with others. He shares others of his names in a condescended way uh, with some of his creatures. Um, even strangely, the name Elohim is used in scripture to talk about angels and great men in a kind of condescending and honorific way. God will stoop to share certain of his names with creatures by his grace. He doesn't share this one with anyone. For this one, he's jealous because right here lies that wherein God is utterly unlike the creature. He's the I am that just is the I am, the ising one. Now, what is, what's the value of this? What's this supposed to do for the people of Israel when they hear this name? It's supposed to infuse them with unbounded confidence because here's the thing about God. Uh, what this means is that God is not a dependent entity. God's word is not as good as all the things upon which God depends. God's word is as good as God's being, and God just is his own being. He's independent, self-sufficient, pure actuality. And for that reason, you can trust him without qualification and without reservation. That's, that's auseity. It distinguishes God from all false gods. It distinguishes God from everything not God. And it also grounds your confidence in his word. Now here's the point. If God were subject to change, if God were mutable, then God would be, as I said a few moments ago, I am and I'm not but might be. <laughs> you know what I'm after? Actuality of being together with paucity of being. That's actually composition. That's how you are. You are seated um, and you may be bored or confused, but in a short while you won't be seated and the clouds will blow away and you'll have more clarity. And so you are not clear about the subject or you are not standing up, but you potentially are those things. Really, but believe me, you are potentially those things, particularly with regard to the, these mysteries. God invites us in, walk, walk diligently, walk slowly, walk patiently. There are glorious things to behold. But that's... <laughs> That's unactualized potentiality at this point, at some degree or another, for each of us. Okay? God is not a God who is composed of actuality and potentiality. There's not God who is and God who could be. Okay? He's just, I am. In Job 41.11, there's another way in which the scripture fortifies this doctrine of divine aseity, where God says, who has preceded me, uh, some translations say given to me, but the, the word literally is preceded or gotten in front of. Who has preceded me that I should pay him? And then God says, everything under the heavens is mine. The, the idea is no one gets out in front of God so that he is indebted to none. But if God changes, then he's indebted to whatever agency produced that new actuality in him. God would be indebted to whatever it was that funded or supported the change. And you can say, well, what if God just changes himself? But if God changes himself, then he's composed of parts. There's got to be the actualizing part, and then there's got to be the other part that's not the actualizing part that receives the actuality. And then simplicity collapses, and then divine absoluteness collapses. If God changes, he's beholden to some cause of being, and he's obligated to say thank you. Can I just make one quick observation about aseity? I think I was sharing this with a brother last night. Scripture nowhere records God giving thanks to the creature. 
It's not because he has bad manners. It's because he never stands in that sort of relation. No one gives to him. So you, you hold the door for me and I say, thank you. You gave me something that I needed. You supplied to me what I lacked. I needed an open way to pass and you supplied it to me. And so I say to you, thank you. I say, thank you to all who give me what I lack, but God lacks nothing. And so he doesn't say thank you. Doesn't mean that he doesn't love his creature. Doesn't mean that he does not demonstrate his pleasure upon his people. It just means that he's not indebted to his people in any respect. That which changes is indebted to that which supplies its new state of being to it. God's glory then is not increased when we glorify him. His fullness of love isn't intensified by our acts of obedience. And even as we considered last night in Job 35, his intrinsic hatred for sin isn't made hotter by our transgressions. His manifestations in the created order of love change. His manifestations of wrath upon men in place and time change, but intrinsically that in virtue of which God hates sin is infinitely white hot, and that in virtue of which God loves is nothing but his own being. God is love. The delight he manifests in repentant sinners and the wrath that he reveals against the ungodly are nothing but his own fullness of being variously disclosed with reference to particular creatures and at different times. With the pure, he shows himself pure, Psalm 18. At one and the same moment, with the crooked, he shows himself twisted. Changes in the manifestation of God? Yes. Changes in the God manifested? No. Now, to some more explicit biblical text. Stephen Charnock again. He who hath not being from another cannot but be always what he is. God is the first being, an independent being, who was not produced of himself or of any other, but by nature always hath been, and therefore cannot by himself or by another be changed from what he is in his own nature. God gives you your is, whatever that is, that you are, and then the various things that you have, your being, in him you live, move, and have your being. Being is most fundamental. Movement and life and breath and all things are all the super added benefits So, in addition to just being that he gives to you. But if God is all say, then nothing supplies being to him and therefore he cannot be changed from what he is by his own nature. If God were to be changed, we should immediately ask the question, um, from whence came this change? What granted God this new actuality of being? Wilhelmus Abrockel says, no one can add to or subtract anything from his being, neither can anyone increase or decrease his felicity. Uh, that's just an old-fashioned word for saying his happiness in being God, his joy in being God. God doesn't have moods that rise and fall. Now I want us to consider a few biblical texts and some context. And I, this was somewhat surveyish, but I think the survey will in fact give us an enriched appreciation of the meaning of this divine immutability. I first want to look at Psalm 102. Psalm 102. And uh, I want to begin in verse 23 and then build up uh, particularly to verse 27. Psalm 102, verse 23, the, the, uh, the psalmist prays this, he has weakened my strength in the way, he has shortened my days. I say, oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. So this is, a man, this is a midlife crisis in which the psalmist thinks that he's not long for this world. 
and he's praying, oh Lord, preserve me from what we would call an untimely death. Now why ask God? That's the question. Why ask God? I mean, my life is changing and looming ahead of me is a death sooner than I expected. Uh, and he says, oh Lord, you've shortened my days. I said, don't take me away in the midst of my days. And then he says, your years are throughout all generations. So in other words, my years are but a breath, three score and 10 perhaps, but God's years are not like that. So he's asking God to preserve his life and give him a few more years. And the reason he asked God is because God is not bound by years the way that man is. I don't ask a temporal creature to give me a longer life. I ask a creature who isn't inhibited by time. I have to come to the Lord of time. I have to come to the one who isn't subject to the vicissitudes of time. If I'm going to ask for preservation and strength, I don't look to changing things. I don't look to momentary things to give me stability in my momentary existence. I look to the non-momentary thing. I don't hitch my wagon. If I want stability and if I want strength, I don't hitch my wagon to that which is of yesterday and gone tomorrow. Of old you founded the earth, verse 25, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure, or you remain. Here he's talking about the cosmos, which seems, of all things, so fixed. The moon and its phases, the heavenly bodies in their orbits, and rotations, and he says, they will perish, you endure, all of them will wear out like a garment, like, and this is, I wanna focus on this very carefully, like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. So in this case, he's saying that not only do things change, but in fact, the agent who produces the changes is God himself. God is, when we're talking about agency, God is the great changer, not the changed changer, or if I may say, the moved mover, but rather the unmoved, unchanged changer and mover of things, including the heavenly bodies themselves. You change them and they are changed. So you are the Lord of all mutations. You are the Lord of mutability and you orchestrate and ordain all mutations now here's an adversative in verse 27, a contrast. Nasby translates it, but you are the same. Unlike the things that are changed by God, stands God. God changes things, God doesn't change himself. That's the contrast here. The psalmist says, you change them and they are changed, but you are, the word is actually strange. It could also be translated, coming back to the Exodus 3.14 passage, that word could be translated, you are he. I don't know if some of you, some of you have studied Greek and you, sometimes you come across a word or Hebrew and the word means he, she, it, or same. I'm, that's my flashcard memory right there. He, she, it, or same. The idea of same is a, is a statement of identity. I think what the psalmist is saying is in contrast to the things that are changed, you are the he, the ha'on, the I am. You could render it the same. But the point is, God is not like the things changed by God. He's not a changing thing. I want to I just flag one warning right now. Um, even in our modern evangelical and, and Calvinist circles, um, there has been a trend among some to say that God is not absolutely immutable. He's only, he's only um, immutable in a certain respect, but he's mutable in other respects, but it's okay that he's mutable in other respects because he is, and we're Calvinists, right? He's controlling the changes he undergoes. So what they've been doing is invoking sovereignty 
and placing sovereignty as a kind of shield of protection over a sort of novel kind of divine mutability. God changes, but it's okay because he's authoring his own changes. God is, as it were, ultimately deciding and directing the mutations of his own life. And since he's sovereign, we can be at rest. But I think this psalm explicitly rules that out. I'm not explicitly because the contrast in verse 26 is things God changes. What does God change? The cosmos and all the lower creatures within them. And then the adversative, but you are he. And the idea is if God were changed by God, then he'd be like creation, which is changed by God. I think this idea of self-authored mutations is in fact gonna run into very strong conflict with scripture. And I think it will, for all the good intent behind it, destabilize our confidence in the promises. We don't need a sovereignly controlled sort of modest mutation. We need God who is the I am. We need God who does not become. Secondly, let's look at Malachi 3.6. I read the passage. I wanna put it in a little bit of context for you. Malachi 3.6. In this, uh, in this passage, the, this is very late in the uh, history of Israel. The exiles have returned. All the promises of the major prophets have not come to pass. There's no, th- there's no son of David on the throne. There's no glorious sort of temple greater than Solomon's. And the people begin to be cynical about God. In fact, they are still under Persian rule. They are still under the authority of hostile idolaters. Uh, and the people begin to drift away from devotion to God. And in verse 17 of chapter two in Malachi, he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words that you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them or where is the God of justice? This is a statement of cynicism. Where is the God of justice? Because if there were the God of justice, there wouldn't be tens of millions of aborted babies. God doesn't care. If there was the God of justice, there wouldn't be the legalization of homosexual unions because God opposes that sin. Where is the God of justice? The temptation for the Christian, perhaps in any culture where the wicked thrive, is perhaps, yet perhaps to, there are many temptations, but let's talk about the theological temptation. The theological temptation is to think that God is off his game That God is, he was once the God of justice. Remember the 10 plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh's army and the the wiping out of the idolatrous Canaanites and 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 the striking of Nadab and Abihu when they brought strange fire. Remember when God was zealous for his glory and now the wicked prevail. And I think the underline, the undertone here is God, you just aren't, you aren't like you used to be. You aren't the same. God says in verse six, of chapter three, I, Yahweh, do not change. I love this next line. Therefore, O sons of Jacob, you are not consumed. The idea is, if I were a changing God, if I were as fickle and, and uh, shifty as you say that I am, let me tell you, the first thing I would have done is wipe you people out. <laughs> the fact that you're here and not destroyed actually demonstrates that I am not changing. I'm faithful to my covenant. I'm faithful to my promises. And then he says in verse seven, from the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. It seems like I left you, but it's really you who left me. Now, how does this, how does this look in Israel's history? You know what it looks like? It looks like the Shekinah glory cloud 
Leave that theophanic manifestation of God's presence and protection leaving the temple. And you might think to yourself, God, where'd you go? But that's actually just an emblematic picture of the departure of the people's hearts from God. That phenomenal change is not a change in God. It's a, the change, there's a change in the phenomena. The glory cloud is gone. But there's not a change in God. That's just a, that's just a manifestation of God's holiness vis-a-vis the newfound wickedness and idolatry of the people. So God says, and then he says this, return to me and I'll return to you. It's really a beautiful statement. How can God, if God has no shadow of turning, how can he return? If God doesn't change, how can he come back? Okay, I think the answer to that is he's speaking here about his manifested covenantal presence and favor phenomenally shown to us in time and in space. That consolation of his spirit and of his presence. There's a change, the theologians would say, in God's showing of himself, but there's not a change in the God who is shown. Finally then, before we get to Hebrews 6, briefly, James 1.17. James says that God, says that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to turning or shifting shadow. That God is not fickle, that he is not changing. There is no shadow due to turning in God. Let me say something about the gifts briefly. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above. There's variety in the gifts. He gives to all life, breath, and all things. He doesn't give those in equal measure to every person across all time. God distributes his gifts, sometimes in abundance, sometimes he withholds his gifts to teach us some lesson or to punish the wicked. He gives breath, he withdraws breath. Every good and perfect gift, of which there are many, and in which there is variation and change, comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation and change. God's demonstration and God's dealings with you may change. Puritans used to talk about dark providences, dark providences. It's not always sunshine. This morning it was cloudy. I'm in Florida. I'm from Philly. I wanted sunshine. God wanted me to have cloudy, a cloudy morning, a damp morning. The gifts may be variegated and changed. Every good and perfect gift, many and changing, come down from him. But don't read off of the changes in his dealings and his administration, a change in him. Don't think that God himself is changing. Why this is important. Hebrews chapter six. Hebrews chapter six. This epistle is written to people that are facing arguably um, stiff headwinds of cultural adversity for their faith. Their faith is considered um, dangerous and sectarian And the temptation for some who profess Christ is to seek refuge back in Judaism. Judaism was a tolerated and safe place within the Roman Empire. And the temptation for those who have professed Christ as the fulfillment of all God's promises is to simply take cover from the hostile winds, the the ill winds blowing against them back in Judaism. The argument 
throughout the epistle is that Jesus is better. Don't leave the fulfillment. Don't leave the, don't leave the substance for the shadows and for the types. Don't live as if Jesus isn't God's yes to all of his promises. A better priest offering a better sacrifice, ratifying a better covenant. If you take shelter in Judaism, you will in effect be obscuring the testimony of the glory of Christ Jesus. But the political pressures are acute and the, the people, that temptation is due to a distrust in the promises of God. And so the writer is trying to fortify their courage and their confidence of what God is doing in Christ Jesus and what he promises yet to do in Christ Jesus. And he invokes divine immutability to undergird their faith. Listen to what he says. I'll start in, I'll start in verse uh, 13. He said just before that, to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Faith is not seen. It will be sight one day, but it's not sight now. Um, that's what the people need. They are believing in precious promises, which they do not yet fully hold in their possession, a kingdom, an inheritance with God requires patience. Verse 13, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. This is important. Verse 14, saying, surely I will bless you and I will surely multiply you. So having patiently waited, he, that is Abraham, obtained the promise. And then the writer sort of goes into a parenthesis here, talking about this whole thing about swearing. Why does God need to say, why would God say, I swear by God? I don't say that trivially. God says that. I swear by God. I swear by myself. Now, let's talk about this for a moment. For men swear by one greater than themselves, is the idea, by one greater. And with them, an oath is given as confirmation, as confirmation is an end to every dispute. So as it is among men, we make promises, we give assurances, um, and Someone might say to me, why should I believe you? What confidence can I have in your word? Uh, and we take an oath, we invoke an oath in something that is stable or should be stable. So we ground our words on a basis, a foundation that connotes stability. Okay? So if I were to say to you, I, sw I swear to you by the fog bank outside that I'll give you $100. I'm hoping, not, I'm not a meteorologist, I'm hoping that at noon I'll be off the hook because the fog will be gone. You know what I'm after? I rooted my words on something ethereal, something shifty, something transient, and to the extent that my word is grounded on something shifty and changing, my word is to just that extent shifty and changing and not deserving of your confidence. And so you swear by the things that remain, and you swear, per, and, and in the older days they would swear by human institute. You don't swear by the sand on the seashore. It gets washed in and out. You don't swear by the fog or the clouds in the sky. They blow away. Um, but you, you might, relatively speaking, swear by... Mount St. Helens. Oh. <laughs> but then the top blows off. And, the, and the, the emblematically, the idea is to just that extent, my, whatever was grounded on that thing that changed is itself then changeable. So God swear, we swear by one greater than ourselves. Um, and then he says, but God could not swear by one greater because there's no one greater. 
he swears by himself. What he's doing is he's giving us many precious promises that are yes in Christ Jesus. Some of those have come into our possession, others we wait for in hope. What he says is this, you can trust me because I myself am the ground, the foundation, the stability of the promises that I give. Well, that's great. See, I could do that. I could swear by myself to you. Um, but that's not a very sure foundation. I could, I could die of a heart attack before I get out from behind this pulpit. Um, you know, you could think of it this way. If someone, the boss offers you a job and says, hey, um, we're gonna give you a, you know, you're making 15 bucks an hour. We're gonna, we're gonna bump you up to 25 bucks an hour. Tell you what, um, he says that to you on Friday afternoon. Why don't you come in Monday morning? Uh, we'll talk about it and uh, I, I promise you the company's gonna do this. Then you get the news on Saturday that your boss uh, died of a massive heart attack. And you show up Monday, you come to the office and say, hey, I'd like my raise. Um, I was promised 10 bucks. Uh, they're gonna look at you and say, by who? Where's the stability? In other words, he may have given you assurances, but he can't even assure himself of his own being, of his own life. See this? God says he swears by himself. He says, you can trust me because I myself am the foundation of my words. And I think there's something going on here. Many will want to say that divine immutability is just nothing but the consistency of God's character. I want to say that that's a fruit of immutability. The constancy of his character. So I could say, you know, let's just go back to Mount St. Helens. Mount St. Helens had a great track record until it didn't. You know what I'm after? In other words, it had a good history. And I could say, reasonably speaking, you could go hiking up there. Okay? But I can't guarantee the top won't blow. The point of God's, the point of God's immutability is not just, constancy of character, absolutely. And the Bible repeatedly points us to his faithfulness over long durations of time to his covenants. And we are to take consolation in that. But remember that faithfulness itself is actually grounded even more deeply on the very, on, on the very being of God. So God's immutability isn't just the fact that he's got a great track record of faithfulness for 10,000 years. God's, God's immutability is in fact that unchangeable fullness of being that just is himself upon which his faithfulness in covenant and promise and in justice and wrath is based. Amen. So listen to what he says in verse 17. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. God doesn't need to take an oath. God doesn't need to swear by anything. But because we are accustomed to giving grounding and foundations for words and promises, God accommodates us and he swears by himself. And he, do he doesn't swear by himself because he needs to. He swears by himself because it helps you, because it helps me. So that, verse 18, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, I think these are his word and himself, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. The writer does not say by two unchanging things, so let, me be, let me be just a little bit narrow here. Things can be unchanging without being unchangeable. There's a difference. One just simply says, it hasn't changed yet. The other one says, it could never change. He said, it's, the, it's the latter that the writer uses here. Hametathetone, the one who is not just unchanging, but 
unchangeable. Just hasn't happened to change yet. Cannot change. So that by two unchangeable things, now what's the point of all this? That we who have taken refuge, we've sung a number of songs this week about refuge, and some of us are feeling uh, serious pressure socially, culturally, right now, and we are being reminded that our rock and our refuge is God. But here's the thing, we don't want a rock and a refuge that's shifty. We don't want a rock and a refuge that's movable. I need a rock and a refuge that isn't going anywhere, that can't go anywhere, that can't change. And I need that rock and that refuge to ground, that unmovableness of God, to ground my hope right now, right now. Listen to what he says. So that, this is a purpose clause by two unchangeable things, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement. Strong. Can I just tell you this? To the extent God is mutable, your encouragement should thereby be weakened. To the extent that God is actualized by changes that come upon him, to that extent, your confidence in him should be depleted. But you need strong encouragement, particularly when the winds of adversity in the world are strong. You need immutability for this, that we would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This is the hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, what, how am I supposed to expect that to do anything for me? Because that is the fulfillment and the enactment of God's promises and all that God promises and all that is supposed to come out of Jesus' high priesthood to your good is in fact rooted and grounded in the, not unchangingness, which is true, in the unchangeableness of God. Um, these things are worthy of abstract contemplation. And I, 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 I'll, let me put one word in for um, abstract thought. Abstract thought is not meant to just simply stay out there in abstraction. Abstract thought is so that we can get some true characterization of things that are concrete realities. We may think abstractly, but we bring that, because we do, but we can bring that to bear on a reality. The being of God, the isness of God, the unchangeableness of God, God not made to be, that is the basis of our encouragement. Without that, no creation. Without that, no redemption. Without that, no confidence in his promises. Without that, no strong encouragement in a difficult world. How about this? Without that, nothing. Sine qua non. Let's pray. God, you are good. You do good. You have given us many precious promises in Christ Jesus in whom they are all yes. And our amen is to you through him. Lord, we bless you that you are the unchanging God, that with you there is no variation or shadow due to turning, that while all the world around us turns and shifts, you are our rock and our refuge who is immutable. Lord, I pray for each of us here that you would give us a renewed and abiding sense and confidence and joy in this immutability of you whose name is I am. Lord, we, we are not sufficient to comprehend these things, but we do believe them. Encourage our hearts and forgive our unbelief and help our unbelief and give us a renewed confidence in the unchangeableness of your being 
We bless you and thank you for condescending and swearing by yourself. Lord, give us that strong encouragement to lay hold of the hope that you have promised to us. We pray it in Christ's name.